We'll start the MP3 Skype recorder regardless, even though it sounds poopy. Regardless is a word. I mean, I'm sorry. Start it irregardless, please. <laughs> That's better. Okay. What'd you say, Terry? I said irregardless is not a word. <laughs> irregardless, I'm going to use it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I made Terry cringe. Jack off. I'm sorry. Did he say he was going to jack off? Yeah. <laughs> That's what I, that's what I heard. Um, <laughs> like, how long is this gonna take? <laughs> hey, bring yourself to completion and come back. We have a podcast to do. Bringing you content that touches people while they touch themselves. Hello, and welcome to the Amateur Skeptics Podcast number 99. We are tentatively recording this evening with Ian. Good evening, everybody. Terry. Hello. And Mac. I'm tentatively recording. How is everybody doing this evening? Tentative. Tentative. Well, that's good. I'm doing great. All right. Well, Ian. Yo. All right. So, guys, if I was to say to you, ding dong, the witch is dead, who would I be talking about? I'm sorry? Sylvia Brown. Sylvia Brown. Ding, ding, ding. You got a million points. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I was going to answer that all serious and go with... with the actual origin of the phrase. You would have been wrong. So, Sylvia Brown, how old did she say she was going to be when she died? 88. 88. And how old was she actually when she passed away? 77. That's right. So when was that, like, November 20th that she finally kicked like, off? Go, yeah. All right. So, so long, Sylvia Brown. What country is under attack by Satan and needs more exorcists to Congrats. fight him? What's that? Great Britain. Great Britain. That is a uh, that is wrong. Anybody else? Wow. Okay. You don't need more exorcists in Great Britain because they've got those, those three girls. teenagers. Right. They've yeah. got they've got plenty in the in those three little munchkins. No, it's actually Mexico. Mexico is in need of more exorcists. Um, <clears throat> we believe that behind all of these big and structural evils, there is a dark agent, and his name is the demon. That is why the Lord. Uh, the Lord wants us here, a, wants us to have here a ministry of exorcism and liberation for the fight against the devil, said Father Carlos Triana, uh, a priest and exorcist in Mexico City. So Mexico is looking for more exorcists. I hadn't realized there was an uptick in demonic possessions I, in Mexico. I hadn't either. And the headline that got me, and this is from Doubtful News, was in Mexico City, church attempts to exercise Satan, uh, Satan's death to bring peace. But yeah, so it sounds like, um, and you know, the thing is, is that these things are going on all over the place. <laughs> um, the idea that we need more exorcisms is kind of ridiculous. I think we need less of them. All right. Psychic consultant looking for a missing person didn't find a human, but actually found a million dollars. Million dollars is wrong. Anybody else? Cat. A cat. A cat. Cat is an interesting guess. Anybody else? Otter. He found a bear. Uh, the family said they were following a tip from psychic Phil Jordan. Family friend Ken Rose said, There are no animal bones known to mankind that have five fingers, except all types of apes, monkeys, bears, possums, koalas, etc., etc. So apparently this is a fairly common feature, and bear... Uh, skeletons are often mistaken for humans. 
because the the paw kind of has the five has five fingers right. and uh, with no flesh it's easy to misidentify the irony is that the family was looking for Goldilocks <laughs> being out of all the other ones closer to the size of a Although I picture them being a little bigger. Bigger, yeah. And the bones are probably more robust, right? Because they well, weigh a lot more. Yeah, but I mean, it would, you know, the thing that makes humans special is the opposable thumb, right? Right. Yeah, um, but you're not going to see that placement necessarily. You're not going to know that. Exactly. So that's right. why these misidentifications happen. I mean, <clears throat> would you be able to identify an, an, ape's, an ape skeleton from a human skeleton? Yes, I would. Cause by I'd the skull. By the Fine. skull. Okay. Well, and and of course, yes, Terry. Okay, you have a certain expertise there. But let's not talk about people with expertise here. As common folk. As common folk. All right. So, guys, what doesn't float your boat? You want me to start making a list? Yeah, please. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I am looking for something specific that won't great. float a boat. Uh, flower pot. Oh, okay. All right. Well. Not as creative as I was looking for. How about faith and junk bonds? Okay. Have you guys heard, heard about oh, this? So the Noah's Ark. Aha! Uh-huh, the Ken Ham's Ark experience seems to be having a little money problems. They need the numbers. I don't know. I went through the numbers. They they need seventy three million. It looks like they've got twelve, but it looks like they only need to fundraise fifty three million, and then once it's built, the rest of it should get paid for by people coming to see it. Um, but here's the thing that that really gets me about these junk bonds is that these the bond issuer is the city so so the city is is putting is putting up the junk bonds to to raise the money to fund the the ark experience which is clearly biblically based which seems to me to be a conflict of interest you know between church and state establishment clause yeah yeah exactly but the good thing about these bonds is they never have to be paid back. The only thing that are going to back the bonds will be the revenues from the ARC experience. And, of course, if it fails, you get nothing. So does that mean the city is assuming the risk? Nobody is assuming the risk. They're, they are junk bonds. And I'm pretty sure that I heard that to to make one of these investments, you have already have to have an income level of a million dollars to buy these bonds. So because once you once you have an income level above a certain amount, you lose certain per- protections so you're supposed to be like an educated investor is my understanding and so it, so if your income level is high enough and this thing fails well you're just out the money because you should have known better so I, this is what i believe i heard um is that you so the income level had to be higher to buy these bonds in the first place so they're not going to be selling them to me and you and some of these bonds i mean the, i think the cheapest one was five thousand dollars for like a 15-year bond um, and there was some, what, a five-year bond for uh, $25,000? So it's expensive to buy these bonds in the first place. Wow. Um, <clears throat> yeah, so. But the the problem, the biggest problem that I see with this is the fact that the state is issuing the bonds. They will be the bond issuer. It's not um, Answers in Genesis that's issuing the bonds. They're not going to be liable. So why is that? Why is the city doing it? Uh, because they're a bunch of hillbilly truck drivers. Well, why can't uh, Answers in Genesis or Ken Ham or whoever issue? Well, them because on? they don't want to do that because they don't want to take the liability. They don't want the risk. Yeah, they don't want the risk. That's very Christian. Yeah, it's very Christian. So, well, guys, I hope that was entertaining. Yeah, it was fun. Yeah, I had a good time putting it together. So let's move on to our bigot of the week. In Ravalli County in western Montana, uh, it sits between Flathead Lake and Missoula. The planning board chairman, Jan Wisniewski, is opposed to a request by the Confederated Salish Kootenai Tribes 
to place the sacred site in the Federal Land Trust. Uh, the tribes have this sacred hilltop and tree that, you know, is part of their origin mythology. They want to put it uh, in Bureau of Indian Affairs Land Trust, which means that the city and county would lose the sales tax revenue. So commissioners are all up in arms. Uh, Wesniski says uh, he went on a fact-finding, in huge quotation marks, trip around the state. I don't know how that would help him address this particular issue. He alleged that in Haver, Montana, law enforcement officials reported that their jails were full of drunken Indians. So rather than negotiating maybe uh, some fees or whatever to cover emergency response services to that site, he decided to throw a racial slur at the Salish Kootenai people. So that was nice. Only eight hundred and eight dollars. Um, yeah. I'm only like, okay, if the county's only, if, you know, how bad the, is the county doing if they make this big of a deal over eight hundred and eight dollars in annual? I mean, this is annual. This is eight hundred eight dollars a year, and that's it. Like, <laughs> well, it's rural, so it's probably, you know, probably whatever. It buys the payment on the fire truck or something. It's probably significant in their budget. There's probably a different way to negotiate that. <laughs> so it turns out better. Uh, oh, the other oh, go ahead. problem because you're all drunken Indians. Like, no, that's not going to make the big. Hey, yeah, let's work with you. No, oh, yeah, it's ter- it's a ter- it's terrible. Is it, it's uh, unrelated. Is it possible that this guy just wanted to get his 15 minutes of fame? I think he was just pissed off. Do you think that he was trying to live up the reputation of the um, mayor in Toronto? Yeah, maybe so. <laughs> I mean, if if I was if I was looking for somebody, you know, to kind of hang my hat on. Yeah, aspire to <laughs> level of yeah dysfunction. So the other bigot of the week, we have two. It's a two for this week. Is a uh, um, Delta County School Board in Colorado, a member of the Delta County School Board, commented about transgendered students that if a trans female, which is a male to female um, transition student, wants to use the women's restroom, she should be castrated. Wow. Yeah, I like. There's not much to add. You know, is there? But is there any sort of? I mean, what what can we do about this? I mean, do we have to vote them out? I mean, is there any sort of like censor? Can can you can you? What is it? Um, what do they call censure. it? Censure, censure. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, but you know, because in Congress they can you know kind of give somebody a reprimand. Is, is I mean that because that's an awful thing to say. It well, is a terrible of, thing to say. It's ridiculous and terrible and hateful, and a bunch of community members sp- have spoken out about it. Well, some of the logic to me doesn't really even work because. In high school, I never recall going completely naked in the locker room anyway. Um, I don't, you know, we were never required to take showers after gym class or anything. And if all you're doing is stripping down to your underwear, I, you know, I don't see it being that big of a deal. And, you know, most of the stuff you do in the restroom, you do in private anyway. I mean, you know, that's what yeah. they're for. Except for the urinals. And they're but not they're even not talking about it. They're not in the women's restroom, so yeah. it's a non-issue. She's yeah. going to be going into a private stall yeah, or so whatever they have in there. Kind of yeah. ridiculous. Oh, that's really a non-issue here because, you know, it's overly sexualizing. It's really that sexual. Right. And if the issue is that these young girls might get a glimpse of penis, then whatever. There's got to be like a, a private stall or a handicap stall or something that she can use. Like there's got to be a workaround that is not castration. How old are these kids? What, what age? I group? think they're high school students. So, so, I mean, if they haven't seen a penis by now. Yeah. They're behind the curve. <laughs> a little bit. But, you know, the, the thing of it is here. This is, again, this is, my question is, is this somebody intentionally being inflammatory in order to get their name in the news? Is this somebody who's basically making a kind of a power play here? You know, we think it's backfiring, but is it actually getting exactly, you know, no bad publicity? Yeah, what would her incentive be for that, though? I don't understand that. I don't know. It's a polarizing remark. It's, 
it's a kind of remark somebody would make if they're trying to show how conservative they are. You yeah, know? you might be like even a though status. that you know we're looking at this and going that's not even conservative, that's reactionary. Right, but you could be right. It might be status seeking among her constituents or something. I don't. Yeah, know. I mean this. I've taken that the that the picture that we have here is the member of the Delta Delta County School Board. I believe it is. You know, this is somebody who's. You know, probably, I'm guessing, based upon image here, I'm guessing she's probably 67 to, you know, 65 to 67 years old or so, based upon hair color, facial lines, and things like that. Turkey neck. <laughs> well, you know, I don't know much about the demographics of Delta County, right? But it's likely to be a more conservative county in Denver. It's more rural. It's, yeah. uh, what is it? It's like south of Grand Junction. Right. So, I mean, generally, and we know that Grand Junction is fairly, a fairly conservative community. So this, unfortunately, as bad as we think these rem- remarks are, they will probably play well in her community. Yeah. It probably is not going to get her ousted from the board, where like a state board or maybe even in Jeffco, you know, that that would be the end of her. It did say that people have, um, you know, spoken out against her. So that's at least hopeful. Well, that's good. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, but they're probably saying, well, you know, that's probably a little too far. But secretly in their minds, they're thinking, yeah, but right direction. Sure. Yeah, that could be. It's hard to say. I mean, they're probably... yeah, the, the problem with the whole question itself, though, is that it's there are, you know, there's not just three genders. There's a lot of there's a lot of genders. There's a lot of right. degrees of gender. And if you have a restroom out there for every degree of gender, then, you know, well, why your not whole school have, is plumbing. Why not just have a restroom for everyone to use? Yeah. Yeah. One restroom. Well, or whatever. I like mean, I well, it's hard to have. You can't have five restrooms, right? It's it's one or two makes sense. Maybe even three, but maybe one or two and a family type restroom for people who don't identify clearly as one gender or the other. Right, but in high school, how many people want to be caught using that restroom? Right. Can they even close doors on restrooms in high schools anymore? I don't know. Do they have stall know. doors? They might not have stall doors. That that's a really good point. I think they have stall. Doors. I don't know. I'm trying to think of the last time I was in a public school building like that. I don't think they. I don't know. I don't remember. St- I, well, I don't last know. time I was in a public school building like that was all right. Thirty years ago. Yeah. There you go. Let's let's age ourselves right on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, can't help it. I'm aging constantly. We're all mo- we're all time travelers. We're moving forward, right? Yep. All right. Performance art. So uh, I classed this under what the fuck? Yeah. Because <laughs> Uh, so craftivist performance artist Casey Jenkins spent 28 days knitting from yarn that she had inserted into her vagina to normalize societal attitudes about the vulva. So she took a skein of yarn and made sure it was wound so that it was a center pull so that the, the loose thread came out the center. She uh, inserted it in her vagina, which is probably like not a big deal. It's maybe about the size of a tampon. Like I don't know how quickly well, she knits. Yeah, but... I don't know how often she have to reinsert. She did it for 28 days, so through her menstrual cycle. She sat in a gallery, in a public, like a public space gallery, and people watched her knit with yarn coming out of her vagina. And her, I, her goal was to kind of demystify the vagina and make it feel all warm and fuzzy to people. <laughs> she actually says that. She actually says that? Warm and fuzzy? To watch it and hear her. It says that it was wool yarn, too. Itchy. I would think, yeah. Now, it's kind of nasty looking, the menstruating parts, because if you look at what's knitting, you can see where she was menstruating. There is definitely, a, you know, this is white yarn. So there's no you know, no way to not notice this really nasty coloration to it. I get it. This is, I, I don't think that this is a, 
a great way to get her point across. How does this normalize the vulva? I mean, there's sanitary concerns. I mean, I, I don't know. There's a gross factor here, isn't there? Is, yep. it, is it just me? Uh, the, only my, gross... the, the question that I, my mind goes to is, is she taking it out when she's done knitting for the day, or is she just leaving that sucker in there? No, I think she knits till she's done and yeah. till she's finished with that yeah, I think segment would... of yarn. Yeah, and then the next day she reinserts. I, I get it's the menstruating part that it's like, well, okay, that you know, we're now we're talking about blood. We're you know, I mean, we're talking about pathogens. We're talking. I mean, that that just seems like a yeah. That, there's a, it's an interesting concept, but there's quite a few things that are a bit. Yeah, you know, hey, to each your own. But I mean, <laughs> it's kind of cool. like I, I have mixed feelings about it because I totally, I'm such a biohazard freak. I completely see what you're saying, Brian. But I also think it's kind of cool that she did this. Like, it's such an interesting concept, and I wonder if just over time, like exposure to a vulva in everyday, you know, activities might make it seem less mysterious in some way. Okay. I think that if you want constant exposure to a vulva, you probably should just become a soccer man. <laughs> Listen, I'm, I'm, I'm a fan of vulvas. I, I, you know, nobody has to, um, justify them to me. Biohazard stuff aside though, regarding the menstrual blood, like that was the part that was the hardest for me to watch. But I wonder if it had been an, a different kind of blood or a different kind of bodily fluid, if it would have been quite so skeevy seeming. I don't I know. know. It's just the, it's just blood in general, I guess that. And I guess it isn't really that bad. I mean, uh, yeah. I don't know. This thing, each to their own. You know, I, I'm not. I, I don't want to judge it. I, I, you no, know, no, 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 no. Are there? But it's her thing. Let her do it. Right. But my point is, is that I, I get, it makes me have certain visceral feelings that I can't control. You know, yeah. and I just want to be honest about those feelings. Um, be, be, I, I mean, I'm not saying she shouldn't do it. No, I mean, I, by all I means. Have, I have a lot it of experience. Honestly, with strikes me. Sorry. I was going to say, I have personal experience with menstrual blood, and uh, watching her knit that part was, was I was pretty grossed out. Okay, too. there we go. I so. It strikes me as being uh, not not so much making people aware as it strikes me as maybe like birth of a fetish. Not hers, but other people's fetish for, you know, actually this is not far off from, from buying clothes worn by worn by models on sites. Like panty sniffing kind of stuff. Yeah. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, then I'm okay with it. <laughs> All right. Well, I guess, you know, this brings us in. We should have a conversation about public grooming. Pubic grooming. Pubic grooming. And so, Pubic grooming. Uh, in public. Kate, no. Kate, yeah, well, Casey <laughs> Jenkins exposes us to pubic hair, which is cool, I think, too. That's another reason I like it, because she's not perfectly, she's not Brazilian wax. She's just like a regular woman. So I thought that was kind of cool. Uh, Jezebel has an article called Pubic Hair is Back or something, again, because there's this ongoing back and forth kind of in the just pop culture about how women should or should not be grooming their pubic hair, and men too. Um, but this is focused on women primarily. So according to the Telegraph, this is quoting from the article, according to the Telegraph, 51% of 1,870 women who answered the online pharmacy poll in the UK said that they don't style or groom their pubic hair, with 45% saying they can no longer be bothered to keep up the grooming, and 62% revealing that their partners prefers the natural look. So really? that's research uh, in uh, quotation marks. And then it's so then from the article again, ladies, throw those razors away immediately or save them for your legs or, or an art project, an art project involving your legs eh? or <sighs> keep shaving, waxing or do whatever the fuck you want to do. It's your pubic hair. Grow it into dreads and then use those dreads as hair for your doll collection. 
It's your hot body. You do what you want. <laughs> I, I'm imagining there, there's a, um, a TV show that was on HBO called Dave's Old Porn. <laughs> and, uh, and it's old porn from what, you know, like the seventies and sixties. I mean, it's old. Some of it's even older than that, you know, and there was no grooming going on there. None whatsoever. None. And, uh, so it kind of makes me think of that. I mean, okay. It, it also makes me think there was a, oh God, what was the Wayne's brothers did a, um, did a movie and like, Bats come out of there. And it's this big. Yeah, it was. Uh, that was actually the first scary movie. Scary movie. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> yeah. My favorite comment from the comment thread because the whole this article, the comment thread is far better than the article itself because it's just hysterical. But um, there's a comment discussion that is just so funny. My favorite comment is somebody says, "I keep trying to popularize the lower mullet, but no one wants to play along." The lower mullet. <laughs> <laughs> you can't think of that. Oh, that's awesome. I love that. <laughs> this is right. your I, I, I'm reminded of um, years ago, Lewis and Floorwax on the Fox radio station. They had, I don't even remember what the cause was, but the the tagline was basically they were trying to get people to shave their pubic hair and send it in, and the tagline was Pledge Your Edge. <laughs> All right, well... It, that's all interesting, but would you collect pubic hair? No. No? Well, what kind of things should we be collecting? Or well, not collecting, for that matter? Okay, well, to start this one off, um, both me and Mac are pretty intense collectors. In fact, we met because I was working at Walmart in the toy department at the time, and been there fairly regularly, and we ended up talking. Trying to buy toys. Yep. During my time in the toy department, I had some interesting, you know, being a collector myself and working in the toy department, obviously people would come to me and talk to me about things. And you would actually get people come in and say, okay, what toy do you recommend to collect that was going to have value? And time and time again, I kept trying to explain to them, like, don't collect anything for value. There's no guarantee that a single thing you're going to find here will ever be valuable. Yeah, that, uh, I was thinking about that. I was thinking, you know, the kind of collectibles that become value valuable are not things that people ever had any, had any idea that were going to become valuable. During my time working in the toy department, there was only one time I ever, ever recommended buying a toy for the value, and that was the Snack Time Cabbage Pats kit. And the reason for that was it was a popular toy the year it came out. Huge toy. All the girls wanted it. It was great. You could put food in its mouth, and actually the mouth moved, and the food went down, you know, fell into a backpack. But what happened was, right after Christmas, there was a um, report that girls were getting their hair caught in the um, mouth of the Cabbage Patch Kid. And there was a huge recall put on them. You have this huge popular toy that all the girls were wanting. Right after Christmas, had a recall. So the parents were literally taking the dolls out of the kids' hands to take them back. Which meant, one, obviously there's not going to be a big supply of those out in the market. Two, it will be a toy the kids remember wanting, getting, and then losing. So, and it's the type of thing that's going to have a rarity to it, a, a you know, a real demand in you know, ten, twenty years from now. So, anyone who bought one of those, kept it in package, and did not return it for the recall, will probably have a valuable collector. Not to mention the fact that it's got a kind of a dark reputation around it too. So th- there's that, like the rocket firing Boba Fett. Right. So there's a whole lot to it that says, okay, this has the potential to truly be a valuable collector. So I, the one time I saw a collectible being made was um, the Pee Wee Herman doll. Do you guys re- remember immediately after Pee Wee Herman's whole scandal of uh, masturbating in a theater? 
that doll became a collector's item. And right now I can find that doll in like in its packaging in in mint condition from anywhere between seventy five to one hundred and twenty five dollars. Okay. So there's one that because of his actions, particular piece became valuable. Yeah. Well, and often like celebrity deaths. When Dale Earnhardt Jr. died, there's a Dale Earnhardt first. One of the Dale, Dale Earnhardt Jr. Yeah, I, yeah. I believe. After he died, I um. When Dale Earnhardt died, I was still working at Walmart, although I was no longer working in the toy department at the time. Basically, the day afterwards, there was a rush on Dale Earnhardt stuff. People came in, and anything, you know, anything that was his car, they grabbed. And so for, you know, a week or two afterwards, you could find nothing. Of, as soon as it hit the shelf, it was gone. Same with Michael Jackson, right after his death. You know, the Michael Jackson stuff skyrocketed. Everyone's trying to wrap it up. So anytime you have a, something like that, a death or a big scandal... Yeah, you're going to see a jump. But that goes back to my point that it's not something you can predict. No. Even Herman went probably the, uh, right afterwards, those jumped to insane prices. Probably. Who are saying it's actually not too unreasonable. You know, 75 to 120, that's not unreasonable for a collectible. Right, but the doll was, I think it was fairly cheap to begin with, right? Right, but no. I bet you anything right afterwards it was probably going for like 500 or so. It, it, it very well could have been, I because I remember going into some... Uh, toy shop in seattle it wasn't a toy shop it was some sort of collector collectible shop and they had the doll there for and it was i i think i remember it being pricey and that goes perfectly into you know what this is about so the first um, article we hear is family goes bankrupt after blowing their hundred thousand dollar savings on beanie baby they thought would become valuable this is another one that it's like uh, they were they were trying to beat a market that was exploding. I mean, in hindsight, you can go, well, sure, that was going to crash. But in the middle of it, it's hard. It's hard to to, un- to understand because this, even though they're saying that that you know that they're collecting these things and that they're that they're going to make this money off them, this is an emotional thing more than a financial thing. Beanie Babies, um, at their height, the value was skyrocketing. Yeah. Oh yeah. Same. Beanie Babies were Beanie Babies were huge. But then the bubble burst. It, you know, that, that's one thing with collectibles. You know, the, the hype that builds it up and it will have this great short band where this stuff is so valuable. But once it bursts, you know, it falls. I mean, I, when the Star Wars figures came out. Well, let's, let's talk about what burst the Star Wars bubble. It was insane. The, the figures were going, uh, certain weird variant stuff were just skyrocketing price wise. You know, you, a, a figure you could buy for five bucks was already fifty dollars the next day at the collector's store. Stuff like that. It was just crazy. Yep. You know what burst the Star Wars bubble though? George what? Lucas made the prequels. <laughs> well, and I think that's true because all of a sudden all these toys were being mass produced and much quicker, and they saturated the market pretty thoroughly. You know, there's a actually let me let me throw something particular in there about the Star Wars stuff too, though. Um, I think that that is where the myth of of mint on card came from. There is this there is this belief right now with collectors that if something is mint on card or mint in package, that it's going to be super valuable no matter what. And the reason for this is because of the first Star Wars figures. The 1977 Star Wars figures that everybody ripped out of the package, played with, the ones that were still on their cards were the ones people wanted, and those were the ones that went for the high value. Yeah. So now the stuff that is incredibly mass-produced and people are still leaving on card, they're expecting to get a mint-on-card price for something that, yes, it is mint-on-card, but mint-on-card price in some cases is actually less than the original retail value. 
Yeah, well, the um, 90s, you know, the first few waves of the 90s Star Wars figures now, you can barely give away. No one really wants this stuff that, like I said, was selling for like 50 bucks a piece. If, actually, if you give a quarter to a homeless man, he will take one of those Power of the Force figures with it. <laughs> yeah, it, It's interesting. I mean, the, clearly there's a lot of these instances, but I, I think I'm more interested in what's what what's the psychology here? What emotionally is going on with these things? I mean, because there's so many incidents. I mean, we have the Beanie Babies. The other thing that you've got in here um, that that is another one is uh, is comic books, and it's That's a similar the- pattern. The first one's a really good one. Um, how a value of a comic book is determined. Because that's one thing, you know, we, we were talking to the Cabbage Patch Kid, looking at what could potentially make a collectible valuable. And that's one thing a lot of people don't understand, is looking at what actually makes it um, valuable. Now, in comics, this one talks about, you know, the main, I think, three um, aspects to look at. Um, the first one they talk about is landmark comics. Basically, landmark comics would be introducing specific characters. You know, the first appearance of Spider-Man, Batman, Superman, those are like some of the top-selling comics ever. Wolverine versus the Hulk. Yeah. Uh, that first was, appearance of Wolverine. I re- forgot what, I read something about that. I know that actually has dropped, which was interesting. And it, that happened. You know, even in landmark comics, the value may drop at times, depending on certain things. But generally, a, a main character that ends up being significant um, will up the value of a comic. Uh, uh, you know, and that's not guaranteed. But like I said, the the, the biggest selling comics out there are um, the first appearance of Batman, Superman, and Spider Man. Those are the ones that actually um, have gone for over a million dollars. Right, but once again, at the time, could that have been predicted? No, no, no you would have no idea that that was going to happen. And what characters, you know, what new characters are going to be significant and actually have that kind of following? I remember in the um, mid '90s, I knew people that were determined that the Ghost Rider comic. The 90s Ghost Rider comics were going to be valuable. They were investing in them highly. Um, a few years later, you could find in the discount bin at any comic book store, including the you know, early issue. <laughs> I have pretty good. I have it on pretty good authority that there is no comic from the 1990s that's even worth its cover price now. That wouldn't surprise me. We have a couple of things going on, right? We have people who buying these things, hoping that later on that they'll be worth some money. Sorry. Well, hold on. Before we actually touch upon okay speculating, let's you you asked about the psychology of collecting. Well, that's kind of what about... I was going to get to is is the things that okay. that are going on here. I mean, I to finish with the psychology. Okay. Yeah. Well. Uh, okay. Go ahead. So anyways, I'll, I'll wait. It can be transferred over. You know, we're talking about Dale Earnhardt stuff, the Pee Wee Herman stuff. Those have a significance to an event that's happening. Um, with the Beanie Babies, one of the more valuable ones is the Princess Die commemorative one. That's a landmark piece. And so, the, you know, the landmark thing definitely transfers over to other, you know, collectibles. You know, if, if they have a significance in, oh, this represents this time frame, there's going to be more of a value to it. I guess that, that leads me to a point I was I wanted to make is that, that sometimes what these companies will do is they will write collectible on the box. Right. They, they want to tell you what's going to be collectible. Hey, this is a collectible. But what right. does that mean? Oh, yeah. And then that we can get into. You Anything's know, collectible. So the second one is the more obvious. Rare and hard to find comics have value. So, you know, like um, the early Teenage Turtles before they became big, this was an indie publishing. You know, this wasn't Marvel or DC. This wasn't a huge run. So those definitely are not only landmark, but rare. So the early first printings of the Teen Mutant Turtle comics, you know, definitely have a higher value than the later stuff. They were also dark and gritty. Yeah, and interesting. And when Archie Comics took them over, they became uh, zany and friendly. The interesting thing to that is quite often the second issue 
of a series is more valuable than the first issue. A prime example is the G.I. Joe comic. And the main reason for that is normally the first issue actually has a hot, much higher production run than the second issue. So if it's a popular series and G.I. Joe took off like crazy and the second issue did not have anywhere near the production run of the first issue, the second issue became more valuable because of that. Ian, help me understand that. If uh, So you produce a comic and it's really valuable. Why not do a big production run on the second issue? Oh, well, you don't know that it's going to be that valuable. They, d- they don't know how Let's... to... First Let's issue, say, sorry, go ahead, Ian, go ahead. There are people that collect nothing but the first issue. So first issues generally sell better. So they plan a bigger production run. Then the second issue will normally have a smaller production run because they don't know exactly how popular the series is going to be yet. And it'll actually take them a few issues to figure that out. Okay, that makes sense. Thanks. Yeah. There's also, you know, just because the, the, the first run was highly successful, you might have actually saturated the market that wanted that piece. And a second run, if you do it too big, there may not, there may not be the audience for it. Yeah. So like I said, Joe uh-huh. to me is the most famous one that I know of where the second one is significantly more valuable than the first one and that's also the production run. So, so, sorry, just one more clarification. So you're talking about, uh, like the volume one version, you know. Yeah, the first version. Pr- okay. It, first. The, so the second run that you're talking about isn't the second issue. It's the second run of the first. Actually, I'm talking about the second issue itself. Okay. Okay. Thanks. Yeah. Actually, in this case, they pro- probably have done reprinted the second issue a few times just to make sure there's copies of it out there. But the reprints aren't really worth anything. Right. But it's the first printing of the second issue that is very rare just because they did the market. Okay. Then, of course, the final one they list is high-grade comic self and condition is a big issue. Um, I read an interesting article. Guy bought a house for $10,000 that was going to be demolished. And he bought it and said, okay, I'm, I'm going to fix it up and you know get it a little more and resell it. Well, in turning the walls apart, in the crumbled up newspaper that was being used for insulation, he actually found the first appearance of Superman. Action Comics number one. He actually found that in the walls of this house being used as insulation. Well, he took it to his in-laws, and apparently there was some sort of fight going on. And his aunt-in-law snagged the comic, and he grabbed it back from her and accidentally ripped the back cover. The, the, the guy he's auctioning it off through said that that probably cost him about $75,000. But he, it's still going for over 100000 right now. In the what, what makes that comic so valuable? What, what is it about that piece? Well, it, this is a character who's stayed stayed popular despite the best efforts of Brian Singer to this day. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, Superman is probably the most iconic superhero in the world. But can't I read that comic online somewhere now? Can't I go find that comic? Hasn't it been reprinted? You can read that comic online. There have been reprints of it in collections and things like that. But there is, I, I think that this speaks to the sentimental value of of the character and and kind of a almost a sense of this is what the character means to me that I want to have this first issue. So this is what Superman means in my life that I want to have this very first issue of this comic. And, and, and do you get a certain amount of emotional satisfaction out of getting a piece like that? Yeah. Um, hell yeah. Okay. I, my dad has often talked about what one piece, what one collectible would you wish to have? And it's it, like, I would love to have that for one day. I couldn't afford to keep it because I need the money too badly, but something like that would be awesome to say you possess. Like, look, I had a first printing original copy of it, you know, even if it's just for a day or two and then you go and sell it. The fact that I owned it would actually, even though I'm not a big Superman fan, I understand the significance of that issue. 
I mean, that is a significant issue in comic book history. And Would this, having that comic in your possession for one day change your feelings about the character? I don't know if it would that. It would. I, I would definitely say I w- it would probably give me a tingling sensation to just be able to touch that. I mean, to, you know, to, a, a simple comic like that that you know is very rare. I mean, there's um, probably less than a few dozen of those out there now. You it, know, Ian, when you said tingling sensation, all I could see, all I could picture was wavy lines coming off your head. <laughs> The, the, the historical significance to it. And that alone plays a role in it. I mean, even, like I said, I'm not a big Superman fan, but just the idea of possessing that for one day would be significant to me. See, and to me, it's a huge waste of money because I, I it's this comic. It doesn't do anything but sit there and, you know, hopefully under glass, not collect dust, right? I, I mean, am going to, I'm also going to lay a little secret down about that particular comic. It's really not that great a piece of literature. <laughs> but I guess, yeah, my, you know, my thing is, is that I have problems with that kind of sentimental attachment, I, attachment because I, I don't quite get it because there is nothing that I would want to have that badly that is an inert object that doesn't do anything for me. Well, that's why I said I, I couldn't justify keeping it because, you know, the, the value of it, okay, I need the money more than I need to have it. Right, but if you had the money... I, I don't. That, that wouldn't be one I'd, you know, I'd. I'd rather go after Amazing Fantasy sixteen, the first appearance of Spider Man. It's. But my point is still the same. What does that? What does that thing do for you? It just sits there. You but read it. In some ways, it's a historical document. I, I know that might sound a bit corny. You know, and and I I won't pretend that it's as historically important as say the Magna Carta or the Declaration of Independence. But it is still a historical document. It is part of our history. It is part of our culture. It is significant. I, I guess I do get it because I understand why, why the Declaration of Independence is cool, right? Right. Um, why that has to be under glass and why that is precious and, and, and in a certain way. Because even if it was destroyed, uh, uh, everything still goes on the same way, right? But yeah, there's some historical value here. I, I, I get that. But you know, for me, if I'm going to own something, I want it to do something for me. I would much rather, I mean, I, I know that people, you know, talk about these sports cars and how it's just big penis envy and stuff like that. But for me, it would be much more fun for me to drive that car for a day than to own your comic book. And I'll get that. Okay. But like I said, once more, you know, stuff like, I, I think that's one of the things within collecting, especially the rare stuff and the significant stuff. Once more, you know, going through that list of what made something valuable, there is a level, anything collectible, ha- you know, that truly is valuable, truly worth getting has a historical significance, whether or not it's huge or just to you. You know, you, you, you were going to talk about the psychology. There is that level of within, you know, one person's life. You don't, normally you don't collect something that has no meaning to you. Okay. And now we're getting somewhere. Right. That's what I want to know is how do these things create meaning for a person? And, and I'm not disregarding it for you, right? Right. I'm just saying I, I, I get it in different ways. Like for me, it's different. Th- it, it's completely different than it is for you, right? Can I interject a personal anecdote here? Yeah, right please. Now? Yeah. All right. I am uh, turned away from my computer at the moment, and I'm looking at my shelves. On my shelves, I have a shelf of Transformers that are all my representations of the 1984 and 1985 Transformers. Okay. My my best representations of those characters. They are not the Generation One Transformers. They are, to me, the best representations of those characters, the animation characters. Right. And they take me back to, in my mind, they take me back to a time that has a a great deal of emotional satisfaction for me. Okay. You know, I'm watching these watching these shows, 
on you know in the afternoon after school coming home and watching these shows and thinking this is this is cool as hell you know you go back now and they've actually done you know some of the original storylines they were kind of cheesy <laughs> sure some limit to them that hurt them but but i'm i'm looking at these i'm looking at these items and when i you know when i take and I take these off the shelf when I mess with them, when I physically touch them, when I take pictures of them and put them on my blog, which I do, yeah. I I get a, a visceral emotional satisfaction in holding these things and it, it helps me connect it helps me connect to those memories. It helps me connect to those memories in a very physical way. And I think I appreciate that. Right. I get that. And then, and that makes sense to me. And, and I guess that, that, I mean, that is the difference between collecting and, and hoarding, right? Because hoarding gets to a point where it goes beyond the, I mean, it, well, it's an, a severe form of that emotional satisfaction that you're talking about. And to get it, you've got to get the next thing. It becomes an addiction. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Funny. And the, a lot of the times with hoarding, you end up buying the same thing over and over again. It's not even the next thing, but you have to buy that same thing over and over again. And a lot of times you don't even know how many of them you have. Right. Because you don't want to run out or something. Right. Well, yeah. the, there's I've, that. I've had a hoarding problem and I, you know, I still have a hoarding problem. You never really stop being a hoarder, but I got rid of most of my hoarded toys, which are mainly Star Wars toys. I was thinking about, I hadn't considered collecting comic books or collecting toys or collecting Beanie Babies as similar to art collecting, but maybe it's more similar than I thought. So why is there more social status associated with collecting art versus collecting these other things? Well, It's hoity-toity. I, it's hoity-toity, exactly. I was going to say, because most of the stuff that people call art is junk to me. I don't, yeah. and once again, here's another thing I don't get generally. I don't get a lot of abstract art pieces and why, why some people have any sort of attachment to these things. Well, I don't know art, but I know what I like, and what I like is a masterpiece Optimus Prime figure. <laughs> <laughs> Next two articles I put up here, we're talking about, um, basically they straight out say, your comic book collection, yeah, it's pretty much worthless. The reason that I was putting these up here is a lot of people, they come and they see my collection and one thing to ask, oh, how much, you know, is it worth? And I'm like, actually, a lot of my collection I know has no value to it. But a lot of people that collect for, to me, the wrong reason are the reason why the stuff becomes worthless. If all you're collecting for is because, oh, this is an investment, I'm going to buy it now, I'm going to put it in the bag, I'm not going to never touch it again, I'm, you know, you, you're not actually doing it right because more than likely what you just bought is not going to be worth any. And these articles go into talking about people who have big collect. Uh, someone who owned 3,000 comics, which he thought was worth at least 23,000. It was probably more like 500. And the comic book store would probably offer him only $200 for it. Right. And that's one thing a lot of people don't understand. You know, I have thousands of comics. I um, doubt more than a handful of them are really worth any. Even the autographed one. You know, that's what? not going to add too much to it. With any of these, it's all a matter of finding a buyer, right? I mean, yeah. that that's the problem with any sort of collectible is that it's not worth anything to me. It's you want the the, the guy over there that it is worth something to. Right, right. and that that's one of the, my main advice to, to, I always gave to people: don't collect for the value, collect because it actually means something to. You. And that's why um a piece of the action article, which was quite interesting, and at the end, let me see if I can find the actual quote. But it, it, you know, they were saying about the same thing as I said: don't collect for value collect because it's passionate for you and that way it actually feels like you know there's a purpose to the collection if all you're doing is collecting for value you're probably going to end up being disappointed because what will happen is hey okay this isn't the value i was hoping for 
but it's in there somewhere. It, it the, does. There is a there, there is a kind of an issue here of uh, I guess you know of of finding that that right thing that does have an emotional attachment. You know, most of the time, I think that people start these collections as kids, and I think that the article that I put up there that that's one of the things that it says is that that that's kind of when these things start. Because I, it would be difficult for me at this point to find something with any sort of a, attachment. I think at this point, for me that I would that I would need to collect. But I guess I have other needs, food and and stuff like that. I like sometimes I like hoity-toity food, right? Which which goes back to kind of the art thing. But uh, the definition for our audience of hoity-toity food is it has saffron in it. No, it doesn't have saffron in it. <laughs> I was just going to ask. I'm kind of a foodie. How do you, what's the demarcation? I don't know. Well, okay. With, with liquor, it's easy, right? I mean, you, you look at, you look at handcrafted liquors. And by the way, people collect wine as well. Yes, they do. And absolutely. never open the wine. They will collect See, wine and speculate on wine in the yeah, same way. To sure me, will. there's a big difference between collectors and speculators. Well, there, there is. And speculators, you get, in, you start getting into the super, crunchers and people who like to do the numbers to try and figure out what what value of stuff is going to be later and there's an art to that i think that it used to be a bigger thing for me and then i learned to make these things myself kind of the uh, magic went away from some of them oh i think it's high status to make hoity-toity food at home yeah yeah i do i prefer to make it at home <laughs> but like okay hoity-toity food black truffle Right? I mean, that's, that stuff's expensive. Saffron is fairly expensive. Lavender's expensive. So there are those kinds of, you know, things that I like to, I like fine cheeses and stuff like that. But I get a, I get a satisfaction. I get to go and taste these things. Right? Brian, did you just say you found Jesus? Uh, cheeses. Cheeses. Oh. Yes. <laughs> There's a cheese shop that I absolutely love up in, up in, uh, up in Longmont. It's fantastic. Okay. And, yeah. and, and, and I blame, um, Pat and Howard for that too. They are clearly to blame for, 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 you know, for showing me that place. That's why I think I've been there. I think my parents. Yeah. Yeah. They took us there. Really weird cheese shop. Though. Well, and they've got a bigger place now. The, the, the cheese room is even bigger now. Didn't we stop by there on the way back from Estes Park? Yep. Yeah. We did. Yeah. That's the old one. Okay. There's a new one. All right. In the psychology of collecting, I love this one thing talking about Freud. <laughs> I found that. Oh, yes. Yeah. Freud, go ahead. Freud suggested that the loss of control, basically, um, Freud believed that collecting stemmed from potty training. <laughs> Interesting. Freud suggested that the loss of control and what went down the toilet was a traumatic occurrence, and that therefore the collector is trying to gain back not only control, but possession that were lost so many years ago. Oh. You know, this is probably one of the reasons Freud has been discredited. Yeah. But I, because I, I don't know how much collecting actually happens out of a loss of control. I'm hoarding. I think it's sentimentality more than that. Yeah, I would, I would think so too. And I'm not sentimental over my shit. <laughs> no, no, I, I don't recall ever missing it after it went down the drain. <laughs> so I, I thought that was rather amusing. Yeah, I mean, the, and I think we've covered a lot of the pieces in this article. But one of the points of the article makes is everybody's a collector in some way. They, right. Everybody's got something they collect, and you know it could be just be junk. Bicycles. Bicycles. Do you collect bicycles? I the there's a rule that says the number of bikes that you need is always however many you have plus one more. Plus one more. Well, that kind of makes sense though. Yep. That's it's just a spare. That's absolutely. You need a, you need a different bike for every different riding condition, and you know depending on uh, like if you need to haul cargo or whatever, so you need several different bikes and plus one. And plus one. <laughs> so you need. The road bike, 
with the the CrossFit bike. You need the mountain bike. The- you need the around town cruiser. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's like my wife's justification for her shoes. I need one for every outfit, including one her shoe for every outfit. She needs one pair of shoes for every outfit, and she needs one pair of flip flops for every outfit as well. For casual, for right? you know, dress it up or dress it down. Yeah, you also need a cargo bike because if you go grocery shopping or whatever. <laughs> But I guess, you know, there's, there's, there are different pathologies for why people collect. Right. Um, and I don't know if I like the word pathology. Why not? It has a, it has a, you think it has a negative connotation, but these are all, but they, but it is a pathology. Uh, pathology a doesn't have, have to, it, it doesn't, negative connotation. it does not have to have a negative connotation. But if it has, a, if it has a negative connotation, that's because, it's because people believe it has a negative connotation. That's what connotation means. Well, okay, but it sounds like disorder. It does sound like disorder, but I'm not sure that that's what pathology means. But we're talking about connotation. Okay, but and it, connotation is what people think it means. Okay, but regardless, I, I'm not. I, I I'm not saying that that collecting is unhealthy. I'm saying hoarding is. I'm saying that it can go beyond a, beyond a certain line. But in general, collecting is okay. Yeah. Let's say causes though instead of pathology. Causes is a nice neutral word. I'm going to stick with pathology because you don't like it. <laughs> There's yeah, an interesting pathology there, huh? I, that is an extremely interesting pathology. <laughs> it might not be the right word for it. I don't know. I'll have to look it up. I don't know that that, that I don't know that pathology has to have a negative connotation, though. Well, and again, connotation is what people think of it. Yeah. Denotation you, is the actual meaning right, of the word. Right. So you're just wrong. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right, then. <laughs> Oh well, okay. The study of dis- of uh, the study and diagnostic of disease. Pathology might not be the right word. I don't think pathology is the right word. No, it's probably not. But you know, bottom line is every type of collecting has a different cause. Okay. And you know, some people can look at the roots of their collecting and say, okay, this is when it started. They can look at you know what. You know, I can tell you that the reason I continued to collect toys into my adulthood, or what what passes for that, is because the neat toys, the th- the things that I thought I should have had when I was a kid, started coming out when I was hitting the time when toys were technically not supposed to be interesting anymore. Yeah, well, I remember back in eighth grade, I was told by all my friends I had to grow up and stop collecting toys because you just didn't do that, and I didn't, you know, see the point to that because I enjoyed it. Yeah. My grandmother lived through the Great Depression, and she was a collector because she had done without. So she was terrified that she would yeah. run out of whatever it was, sugar well, packets or something. For that matter, for that matter, I have uh, I have a maybe not a genetic component to my collection, but uh, definitely a uh, a nurturing component because my parents used to go out every Saturday morning looking for depression glass at various thrift stores across town, and I would go with them. Yeah, me and Brian have been to your own parents' house. We've saw her yep. collect. And they've got a hell of a lot of glass in there. Oh, yeah. It's, you know, they, they they never allow opera singers within, like, three miles of the house. When, when does it slip? I mean, I guess the question is always, when does it become hoarding? Well, the general rule is when it starts um, getting in the way of a uh, healthy life. You know. So certainly our first Beanie Baby collector, collectors were hoarders because it, it sent them into financial ruin. Yeah, yeah, that um may have crossed the level there. I don't know if it's necessarily hoarding. While well, they didn't start out as hoarders, they ended up that way. Sure. Yeah. Well, but isn't that how it usually happens? It starts out as a collection and ends up hoarding? Well, I started out collecting Star Wars toys and I ended up hoarding them because I thought, well, these are on clearance and I can customize them. Guess where those ended up going when I got rid of them. Uh, okay. Um, were there any safety concerns with them? You know, did you like have them piled up on the stairs where you tripping them? No. 
Um, did when you got rid of him, did you have an emotional issue with, oh, my God, I'm getting rid of him. I can't do it. Uh, at the time that I got rid of them, I had a sense of, oh, this just makes me tired now. Okay. Those are other signs of hoarding. So the um, family going bankrupt, they're at an early stage that could be hoarding. If you'd also have to look at whether or not it was a safety issue and whether or not the emotional attachment is irrational. Like in my case, I, um, over the last few years, have sold off some of my earlier magic cards, which is one of the few collectibles I had to actually increase in value. And it's the early magic card. Magic the Gathering, the first customizable card game. I did it because we needed some money. It wasn't an easy thing for me. It wasn't something that I was happy about. I loved kind of like, okay, you know, it was something I collected and was, thought was pretty cool. The need for the money was more important than the need to keep them. And while it, w it wasn't a pleasant feeling to sell them, I wasn't sitting here breaking down emotionally afterwards, thinking that, oh my God, I've given away a piece of my life or something. And so that's another sign, you know, if you want to look at what says you're a hoarder, is if I was a hoarder, I would have seriously had an emotional breakdown over that. And now we have a pathology. <laughs> so You, you keep know, using that word. I don't <laughs> think it means what you think it means. <laughs> so that's one a collector is going to, the stuff should have meaning to him. And if he does have to sell or, you know, depart with it in some way, he's going to feel a loss. But as long as that loss isn't emotionally crippling, you can't really say it's hoarding. Okay. All right. Let me just throw one other, one question out to you. One question to you out about your collection. Who do you let touch your stuff? Um, actually, my boy did a fair amount of it. In fact, that's one reason why my office is as big of a mess as it is, is because I kind of gave up trying to fight them. Although, admittedly, um, the stuff they get into is my more Star Wars figures, which I know have no real value to it. Um, I have my collector's case upstairs, which is, um, the more interesting pieces that the boys know, you know, not to just play with. And I will take pieces out and let them, you know, hold them and look at them. And we'll often show off the pieces to people. Um, because honestly, you know, people that come into my house are quite overwhelmed by my collection. Yeah. I know I've I've picked up a piece or two out of your collection and put it back on the shelf. I, I don't Under think your watchful eye, of course. I don't think there's thing I'm worried about people touching. Like I said, my main concern is my boys' games to the more valuable, more um, harder to replace and messing it up. But yeah. I, I, I'm not one of those um, collectors that you know, is going to look over, oh, my God, you're touching my piece. Put that back. Put that back. You know, I've, I've seen people like that. I've dealt with them, but I've never quite been at that level. Like How about you, Mac? That if somebody's looking at my stuff and picking it up, I hover like a mother hen. It's, it's hard to do that when you have kids. Yep, that is true. However, I, I will say that while I have my Transformers toys, Tango has a Transformers toy of his own. So he's got one that he plays with. <laughs> All right. I think that's uh, about it. Anything else, guys? Had a good discussion on that. All right. Well, very good. Uh, and uh, say good night, everybody. Good night, everybody. Good night. And that's another one in the can. Thank you for listening to the Amateur Skeptics Podcast. For more information about the Amateur Skeptics, go to AmateurSkeptics.com. To send us feedback, suggestions, or big flaming insults, feel free to contact us at WTF at AmateurSkeptics.com. Other contact information can be found on our website. You can leave a voicemail for the Amateur Skeptics Podcast at 720-295-7785. Music for this podcast was provided by OFM. To find out more about OFM, go to myspace.com forward slash OFMHQ. This podcast is released under a Creative Commons No Derivatives 3.5 license. Thank you for listening to the Amateur Skeptics Podcast. Amateur Skeptics website, Facebook, and podcast album art 
is provided by and copyright Shadow Knight Digital Portraiture. Larger prints or custom pieces are available upon request. 